0: They're cheap, they're delicious, and they're available mostly year round. They're one of my favorite shellfish, mussels. I took a trip to Halibut Cove where I toured Glacier Point Seafoods and talked to shellfish farmers Greg and Weatherly Bates about the difficulties and possibilities of growing mussels in Alaska and beyond. My name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. <laughs> Greg and Weatherly Bates were taking me out to their mussel farm, they told me about the monitoring that the Ketchumac Bay Research Reserve does throughout Ketchumac Bay. The reserve, which is a joint project of NOAA and the University of Alaska, has a small group of mostly volunteers who send in water samples from the smaller bays on the south side, from Port Graham to Bear Cove. They're tested each week to determine what kind of algae and other microorganisms they contain and are the only warning sign shellfish farmers have for dangers such as a paralytic shellfish poisoning event, PSP, that may be coming down the pipeline. Greg noted that Alaska is alone in coastal states in not having a state-run coastal water monitoring system that covers the majority or even large portions of the coast. Samples of product are regularly tested by the Department of Environmental Conservation for the presence of harmful bacteria, but at the time toxins are present in the meats, the damage is already done. And the only testing that takes place on a regular basis at the state level is at commercial shellfish sites and a handful of very popular recreational beaches. There is a new organization, the Harmful Algae Bloom Network, that began operation in 2017 as an effort to develop a coordinated approach to water monitoring. Kodiak Island, which is notorious for PSP and which has long been considered unsafe for recreational harvest by the state of Alaska, now has sites being regularly monitored by the network for perhaps the first time. And individuals can send in samples to some of the labs in the network to be tested, although at an average price of around $50 a test, it's not something anybody's going to do on a regular basis. Anywhere outside this small number of tested sites, you're on your own. Now, there are no doubt plenty of people who will argue that it is the fundamental right of every American to die of a toxin secreted by a one-celled organism that is easily avoided through elementary scientific procedures, and the state has no business concerning itself with such matters. And there are no doubt plenty of other people who will argue that this monitoring costs money that the state does not have, and anyway, it's not like death or illness from PSP and other toxins are an epidemic that leaves carnage across the beaches. Human carnage, anyway. Marine mammals and birds are susceptible to a variety of shellfish toxins as well. What is inarguable is that as the temperature of the water in coastal Alaska rises, the new environment is one in which the organisms that produce such illnesses as PSP and Vibrio will find a very comfortable home. Greg and Weatherly said the advantage of water sampling as opposed to only testing meat is that they can see issues coming and find ways to mitigate them. They've set up a live holding system for their oysters so they can stockpile several weeks worth outside of the bay when the harmful algae populations just begin to multiply. Coastal water monitoring is the kind of collective effort individual business always relies upon to do work profitably. Climate change is rapidly making hard-earned knowledge from 50 or 100 years ago obsolete. I hope that a pot of mussels scented with garlic and accompanied by a crusty hunk of bread does not become obsolete as well.
1: You know, the first like lease sites in the whole state of Alaska were in Halibut Cove for growing mussels. And the Halibut Cove residents having lease sites up in the Halibut Cove Lagoon. And those were the first uh, official lease sites in the entire state.
0: I did hear about that. Didn't Diana Tillian have one of
1: them? Yeah, she was the first one. Her and Jim Branson went on a, uh, a vacation or a trip to Europe and went there and saw all the mussel farms and thought, why aren't we doing this?
2: Yeah, Europe is a huge producer of mussels and
1: it has yeah. been since the 70s. Yeah. And that's how Penn Cove got started. Ian Jeffords' father was in the military and stationed in Europe. And he retired. He's like, I'm starting a mussel farm in the US, you know?
2: Europe doesn't have the predators, though, that North America has with the mussels. They can grow their mussels in open bays like these oyster farms with no protection from predators whatsoever. They don't have sea ducks, they don't have sea otters. They can just grow mussels. Same thing with New Zealand and uh, Chile and you know South America. Oh, places that have a really big mussel industry don't
1: have predators. Uh-huh. Prince Edward Island, 40 million pounds. Yeah,
2: so Prince Edward Island has a huge mussel industry just over the border is Maine. They have the largest eider duck population in the world and a very, very small mussel industry because the ducks are, you know, eat all their mussels. Like they can't contend with the predators. Like in Prince Edward Island, they have bays and bays full of nothing but mussels and they can just grow there without
1: any predators. Because those bays all freeze up, Uh-oh. and it's too—it's much more colder up there. So much further north, they harvest all their mussels through the ice. They—they have to sink their farms down below the ice because all their bays freeze up, and then they bring full-on eighteen-wheelers out on the ice and fill them with mussels, no. and cut holes in the ice. And they chainsaw through the ice and they have these special machines, like, like like a whole gantry system. They slide down the ice and just like a long line, the same thing. But uh, we'd be on top of the ice with. Four wheelers and snow machines and harvesting <laughs> through the ice seriously no all winter long in the dark wow uh-huh. that's amazing yeah. Yeah. like your farm practices and husbandry skills that really make the farm and make the muscle farm a success they're not as hardy as oysters and then t- timing is everything when you do things when you seed and when you set the muscle collectors out and we set the collectors out in june the muscles set the first week of july typically last week of june we keep the collector, we keep we don't touch the collectors pretty much for nine months and then in the next spring we go through and and drop the collectors so they're hanging 25 feet we break that collector apart because in the beginning it's just hanging on the surface and then at the end of that summer we have to protect the muscles either by hanging the net around the raft or transferring them into the oyster cages or mussel cages and then it's a nine months to a year in the protected environment either the in the net or in the cage but it's figuring all that out I mean we were protecting them in the nets the first year and dealing with the nets the first year and that was twice as much dealing with the net then you're like okay I only have to do the net the second year so that's half the amount of work having the mussel crop diversity in our, our farm and having multiple species really is key. One year we couldn't, we feel like there's a good future in the mussels but we were so eager to start our mussel farm is because we couldn't get any oyster seed. All the mus, all the oyster seed died on the west coast from ocean acidification. A big upwelling current of uh, acidic water came, I think from like the industrial revolution, like this hundred year current came upwelling on the, uh, the uh, west coast wow. and it came in. For the first time, he came into all the hatcheries and killed all the oyster seed.
3: That?
1: Five years ago, six years ago.
2: And then they discovered down in Whiskey Creek, Oregon, that the it was because of the pH dropping so low that you know the water was really acidic. So they started adding like sodium bicarbonate, or you know, and that buffers the water, yeah, yeah. and now the larvae fine. Wow. Yeah, but that year there was like mass mortalities and even seed that we got and planted from um you know the hatcheries, it ended up dying up here because it was so weak. Wow. Yeah, so we were like we have to start you know something different. We wanted to not be so reliant on hatchery produced seed and the mussels are wild, a native seed that we just collect. What's the
0: uh, what's the natural range of the mussels?
2: These mussels, yeah. I think, from like California to Alaska. They're all
0: the same species.
2: Well, these middleis trossilus There, there's also middleis edulis on the west coast. That's the common blue mussel, but they're more. I don't. Think, I think that middleist Trosyllis dominates the northern west coast from like B.C. northward and then um, Middlest edgelus. There are some Trosyllis mixed in with the edgelus on the east coast.
1: One farmer that gets him on his farm, but he doesn't like it. Oh really? Uh-huh, and he's got one site, he's got a couple of farms throughout the state, and he gets one farm that gets the Trosyllis. He's like, oh, it's Trosyllis. <laughs>
2: Right, the northern hemisphere. Some places, it's hard to know which species you have. They do interbreed, also.
0: Are green lips only from New Zealand?
2: Yeah, those are definitely like a southern hemisphere um, mussel that we do not see. Yeah. New Zealand, yeah. Being an island, they're like highly dependent on processing and you know large scale exports. Frozen exports, they wouldn't be able to ship their mussels live from all the way from there. That's like the Chinese uh, buffet ones.
0: Although I have been served them in restaurants that should know better. In uh-huh. state.
2: Well, because there's not that many plate uh, mussels farmed in North America, you know. The, most of the mussels you'll see are from Prince Edward Island. At
1: least the fresh mussels. $2 delivered anywhere in the US. Wow. You know, like we talked to customers, they're like, we can get them from PEI for $2 delivered to our doorstep, FedEx. But the trostolus thing is quite interesting, people don't know about that, you know, that we don't have the true blue mussel here. Right.
2: The muscles we have, middleist trostolus is also the common name is the foolish mussel. Why do they call it that? I, I've i always wondered that. fools grow them. Yeah. <laughs> to grow them because they <laughs> die. <laughs> and it's not the, it's not the blue mussel. You know, the, the
1: only other trustless farmer in the world has a uh, same birthday. We have the same birthday. Really? Yeah. Wow. and effort. Yeah. foolish cool yeah. muscle guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're obviously destined to do this. Uh huh. That's uh-huh.
2: weird. They want other people to muscle farm.
1: They feel bad for us. <laughs> they do. The manager of Penn Cove came here. Yeah. Like the whole the, the farm manager's been here. Me uh uh-huh. Try to help us out. Yeah. We're helpless.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're such a popular food in other places yeah. of the world, like yeah. Europe
0: and I just can't figure out why they're not like why they're not everywhere here, you know? Because they're so fish.
2: hard, they're so limited. I we, mean we go out and
0: catch cod. Yeah. You know, there's
1: some protein.
2: You can't collect mussels off the beaches anymore. With the populations of sea otters, the way they've increased in Kachemag Bay, you know, they really rely on mussels. Mussels are one of their best food sources. They're easy for them to get. And so, you know, they need to eat and they target the mussels.
0: So we're gonna take a little bit different tack today. Instead of focusing our mussel dishes on hot, in-the-shell mussels, I'm going to do a couple of dishes that you can make with leftover mussels. You know, after you've had your fill of uh, steamed mussels, which takes a while, but it's always nice to buy huge quantities of mussels because they're pretty cheap. So after you've had your fill of them and you, you have leftovers, you can steam them and pick them from the shells. And then you gotta figure out what to do with them. So I'm gonna do a couple different mussel dishes today. And one is completely made up. Uh, I'm pretty much making it up as I go along. The other is a classic. But we'll start with the one that I'm making up. So I wanna make a mussel, uh, a salad of, m- with mussels, but not like a, not a salad in the sense of like a bunch of lettuce and stuff like that. A salad in the sense of multiple ingredients combined together served cold. This is definitely one of those dishes that I grew from what I had around. And so much good cooking comes from having something and needing to use it. So I've got my mussels, and about a half a head of cauliflower, and I had a little bit of blanched asparagus. I sort of imagined that these three things might taste pretty good together, and then I took a bite of the asparagus with one of the mussels that I had cooked and had left over, and I was like, hey, that's pretty good. And then I saw this cauliflower, I was like, I bet I can make that work. And what I did with that is I roasted it in a 450 degree oven with a little olive oil, a little salt, a little pepper, and in this case, a little smoked paprika, just because I had some, and that goes really well with cauliflower. Roasted cauliflower is one of the underrated vegetables. I love it. So I was like, well, I'll start with that. Then it becomes a question of what can I do with these mussels, with this asparagus, with this roasted cauliflower? I thought, well, it obviously is gonna need some kind of a vinaigrette. And I happen to have a lemon and uh, some olive oil. So vinaigrettes, they're always better with garlic. I'm doing my old trick of soaking this garlic in the lemon juice for a few minutes to tame some of that garlic heat. So I'm juicing one whole lemon through a strainer, give it a little salt Yeah, I'll just mash up the garlic just a little bit. I want this dressing and the whole salad, really, each bite to be a little different. I want maybe one bite's going to have more cauliflower and a little bit of mussels, and one's going to have more mussels with a little asparagus and a little chunk of cauliflower, and maybe a little piece of garlic sneaks in there. Sometimes with a salad, you want every bite to be similar, and sometimes you want every bite to be different. You know, it's it's all personal preference. The possibilities are endless. I think there needs to be another dominant, another flavor to sort of sit just under the mussels because the it's going to be overwhelmingly muscly. I'm going to have a lot of mussels and everything else is going to be kind of a supporter, but I need something else to counterpoint that. Mussels and anise flavor, licorice flavor, you know, fennel, all that stuff, it all goes together really well. Mussels and anise flavor fennel are a beautiful combination i have some fennel and i'm gonna add that into my lemon juice a nice generous handful because i really i I do want this to i do want this to have a nice anisey kick but i don't really want it to just taste like fennel i want i want there to be multiple notes of anise there's a lot of things that taste like anise but none of them are all none of them are the same it's a flavor like you know when an orchestra plays an A. The violins play an A. It's the same note as the horns. It's the same note as the flutes. It's the same note as the basses. But the timbre and the way that they sound, the texture of the sound are all different. And that is one way of dealing with a flavor that is as predominant and as in your face as Anise is to try to try to bring out the different textures in it. So I've added a little tiny bit of caraway, not very much, but that's gonna give it a little more almost of the licorice side as opposed to like the fennely herbier side. This is more like the intense like licorice flavor. And then I have a bunch of Thai basil that I'm starting. And so I'm going to rip that into big chunks, big pieces. And I'm gonna drop that in with my cauliflower and my asparagus. And that will provide yet another, even more like herbaceous and, and almost kind of a sweet flavor. Um, thai basil is, it's like a combination of regular basil that you're familiar with and sort of a light anise flavor. And so that is gonna be another texture. I'm going to add just a pinch, just a very small pinch of cayenne. And now I've got to decide, do I want to add mustard? because mustard would also, I think, go really well in this, but honestly, at first when I started this, I had every intention of adding mustard, and now it's all coming together, and and the flavors that I'm smelling and I'm tasting. Hmm. Woo, lemon juice. Now I'm suddenly feeling like, I don't think I want any mustard. What I am gonna need, though, is olive oil for my vinaigrette. And I'm going to very slowly add some olive oil. Now, if this was a thicker vinaigrette, I would probably stick with the pestle the whole way. But this is a thinner one, so I'm going to switch to the whisk. It's still in the, uh, the mortar. I'm just switching to a whisk because I think it'll whisk up a little better than it will mortar. And remember with vinaigrettes, the more oil you add, the thicker it gets. So if you want a real thin one that tastes very strongly of vinegar, don't add so much oil. If you want a thicker vinaigrette that will coat things uh, and stick to them a little better, then add a little more oil. At a certain point you add so much oil that the oil breaks, but it usually, or that the vinaigrette breaks, but that doesn't happen until a little past uh, right around 4 to 1. If you start going much past that, then you run the risk of thinning out your vinaigrette again and then breaking it. And it's holding together nicely. Woo! I think it could take a little more cayenne. I think it could take a little more salt. I think it needs a bit of black pepper. Now, one of the other textural things that you could do differently here, I have not crushed these fennel seeds. I did not start by crushing them. If you want to have a much more of an intense, permeating fennel flavor, like right now, the dressing doesn't taste a lot like fennel because I haven't bitten into one of the seeds. I haven't gotten near one. Now, over time, the flavor from the the seed will begin to seep out into the dressing. But here, as it's freshly made, it's not going to. If you want it to, you want to crush the seeds at the beginning of the process. So I've torn up my basil leaves. I have uh, cut my asparagus into little chunks. I've cut my cauliflower into fairly large chunks. And now I'm going to add a nice, generous handful of mussels. I still want this to be a mussel salad. I don't want it to be a cauliflower salad. So I want the mussels to be the predominant note. But always remember, you can just add some more. So I'm pretty, I think will add a little bit more, a few more mussels. I like mussels. A few more mussels. Always remember, don't overdress your salads. Just put probably two, three tablespoons of my dressing on there. I think you can use just a little more. Make sure to get all the the way to the bottom of the dressing too, so you can get the chunky stuff and the fennel and all that. Mm. Yeah, there we go. If you taste your salad and it just seems okay, but just a little bland or in the distance, probably gonna take a little more salt.
3: Mmm,
0: mmm. You know what? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Mm. I'm really glad that I found that little three or four stalks of blanched asparagus in the back of my refrigerator, because I had never put mussels and asparagus together, and it's really good. I'm I'm a little blown away.
1: the major hurdles in the mussel farming is the processing part of it. Yeah. Where there's thousands of oyster farms in North America, there's only a handful of mussel farms. Yeah,
0: is that is that because of demand or is it just because strictly capital Expenditure, Capital over-
1: investment. Mm-hmm.
2: And difficulty of growing them. They're uh-huh. a really hard species to grow. Really?
0: Yeah. More so than oysters?
2: Yeah, they are. Um, they're a lot more sensitive. Um, your mortalities can be a lot more significant than oysters. Uh, there's a muscle neoplasia on the West Coast. It's like a disease that's just naturally present in the muscles, uh-huh. like... And they can experience like 70% mortality. Wow. And that's really common on Mm -hmm. the West Coast. So most people grow the Mediterranean mussel, which is imported from the Mediterranean. So you can get the seed out of the hatchery. There's only one commercial middleist trossilus, which is the West... Coast blue mussel farm in the US. It's um, in Seattle. Really? Well, and other than us, right, we right, grow right. those also. We don't,
1: we don't have Middleis edulis on the West Coast. Okay. Middleis edulis is the true blue mussel. We have middleist trossolis. Okay. And they're, we're kind of plagued with the neoplasia all right. that we're talking about.
0: So there's just you guys and one other, one other farm Cove muscle. other
1: mussel.
2: Yeah.
0: That grow this particular mussel in the world. Yeah. In
1: the world. And that, uh, the fact that all the Mussel farms in the West Coast get their seed from a hatchery, and it's the Mediterranean mussel, which so, is native to the West Coast, but...
0: Right, so essentially essentially, no one on the West Coast is growing, up, is growing
1: The wild, wild. mussel. Except Pencove. No.
2: And they grow half of the wild and half of the Mediterraneans because you really need the Mediterraneans as a backup because you. you might lose your crop of trosalis. Right. And that did happen to us. Three years ago, when the blob, like the water got really warm, we had a really hard um, paralytic shellfish toxin event in Kachemak Bay. So we weren't able to harvest our mussels for, uh, four or five months. And by the time we reopened, our mussels had gotten the neoplasia and like, we lost like a majority of our crop. Wow. And like, since then we've been trying to rebuild
0: what is the uh, what are the symptoms of the neoplasia? What does it do?
2: Like mass mortality. They, they just, just like all start dying and it's typically when they're larger size, like harvest size. If we had been able to harvest them if we were open, if we hadn't had red tide, we would have been okay, but because we got closed, they, you know, just start dying
0: and Is it a is it a bacterial cause or is no, it virus? No. Or... It's a virus. Okay. All right. So basically, you guys are the only West Coast oyster farm that actually are doing 100% wild. Yeah. You know, trustless, yeah. And Penn Cove started off like that. Yeah.
1: And they were successful at it for years, and and dealt with the neoplasia. They just manage the neoplasia. Okay. It's not like they don't have neoplasia. They just manage it.
0: Does it does it happen at a certain point in the life cycle, or is it when they're
1: older, and then it comes through at all? A year, every year is different.
0: How 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 old is your typical? Um, Muscle, yeah.
1: Two years at,
0: at commercial harvest. Yep,
1: one to two years. Okay. Pen Cove harvests the the um when they're pretty small.
0: Okay. Do they stay on the ropes the whole time, um, and you don't like what, what's the? Well, we'll go out to the farm and mm-hmm. we can. We're, see we're that. switching that up. Okay.
1: Because they were on the ropes the whole time. Okay. But because the otters. Oh
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number one predator around here. Uh-huh, we're going <laughs>
1: to start moving to the cages, ropes, and then cages.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> the neoplasia, we were always really aware of it. That has been the lemonade factor for people growing mussels in Alaska. like in the West Coast. And
1: they've, they've tried extensively in British Columbia to grow the Middlest trossless, and they've tried to import the Middlest edgeless and have the two breed in their areas, and still, with little success... And just so risky for the farmers to build up a big crop and then have it all die. Right. It's better for them just to grow the Mediterranean mussels and start the seed in the hatchery.
0: So what are the, uh, so the West Coast all grow the Mediterranean mussels. What about the East Coast? Because you guys are from Maine. Did you grow mussels in Maine?
1: Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. And we, Middlest, Edgeless. Okay. And in on the East Coast, on the Atlantic, there's only 4%. Neoplasia.
2: Yeah, they still get it. This neoplasia is endemic in mussel populations like throughout the world. They're more resistant in um like some species, like the Mediterranean, the eastern mussel in the US and in Europe is more resistant. The uh mussel we have on this coast is just susceptible.
0: Gotcha. And is it is it a big industry like on the East Coast? Is it, is West Coast or East Coast? West
1: what Coast works? is bigger. Is it uh, in the U.S. The production is around six million pounds, right. and most of that's grown on the West Coast between two farms.
0: And see the one you were talking Penn about, Pen
1: Cove Mussel and Taylor Shellfish Farms. Are
0: they both in Washington? Mm-hmm. All right. Puget Sound, basically.
1: Yep, and they have they have multiple areas. Like Pen Cove has multiple lease sites to try to monitor or try to you know the get away from the neoplasia and right. uh, spread the risk out.
0: I got you. And, and uh, where is it centered on the, on the East Coast?
1: East Coast, Maine has mussel production, maybe, maybe around a million pounds. I'm not sure of the numbers. But the big producers, uh, Prince Edward Island in Canada, okay. with a 40 million pound production.
0: I gotcha. That's a lot.
1: That's a lot of mussels, 40 million pounds. What about
0: the rest of the world? What is the, uh, what is the, do you, how much do you know about like, mm, European
1: mussel production? It's huge. It's huge. They have to. They've eaten all their fish. Right. And mussels are the best protein with the least amount of carbon produced. It's a really good sustainable food choice.
0: Way to get that one in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: We love mussels. They're so efficient and good for the environment to grow. They're just difficult to grow.
1: Traditionally, mussels are grown on ropes. The mussels stick to the ropes and they're grown on the ropes. You can either hang your ropes from a raft or from a long line, as we do with the oysters. But where there's predators, you have to use the rafts. Because the rafts... You can protect the mussels with a predator net, Okay. surround the raft in a predator net.
0: So it's not surrounded right now, but at some point, fairly soon, you'll probably... When the mussels get bigger, Okay. we'll, we'll
1: put the... We'll, we're we're, we're kind of getting away from the nets and moving more towards cages, mimicking the oyster cages. Right. Just because of uh, they're a little bit easier to handle and um, more efficient with the otters. Places that use the rafts, they have predators for their mussels, but they're ducks. Oh
0: really? hmm. Ducks are a big predator?
1: Muscle ducks are the biggest muscle predator for the farms everywhere no else. Way. That's what everyone else contends with. Really? We have some duck issues, but mostly our issues are the uh, otters.
0: Man, I had no idea ducks were I didn't even know ducks ate muscle. Do they eat the muscles whole?
1: Yes, sea ducks. They can wipe out a raft in a day. No way. A whole crop. Wow. hmm For the farms.
0: So what are the how do they how do they combat ducks?
1: Hanging hanging nets surrounding the rafts and nets. They don't
0: have, like, trained falcons?
1: No. (laughs) Some places in the world, some parts of New Zealand, have problems with uh, predatory fish. And they have to surround the mussels with nets because of predatory fish. But in North America, it's primarily the ducks. Wow. And for us, it's primarily the otters.
0: First dish was one that I made up. And it was served cold. Chopping an onion, by the way, for my next dish, which will be a classic Spanish dish found very often in tapas bars called tiger mussels. And tiger mussels are related to croquettes, and croquettes are a famous way to use up leftovers. And that's what we're going to be doing here, except these are tiger mussels, which are basically a croquette mixture stuffed inside of a mussel shell and then deep fried. Just a more interesting presentation than just a, a cake. Although you can certainly make them just as cakes. Now, there are several different ways of making croquettes. You may be familiar with using breadcrumbs and egg is a pretty common way. Also, some particularly salmon recipes in the South call for mashed potatoes as the binder. Crab cakes usually use uh, bread and mayonnaise or sometimes bread and egg. Maybe my favorite way to make a croquette is with a bechamel. Actually, what I tend to make is a velouté. They're basically the same sauce. A bechamel is a roux-based sauce made with milk. A velouté is a roux-based sauce made with basically anything else, typically stock. Since I steamed all these mussels, I have all this leftover mussel liquid. It's really good. So I'm not going to make a bechamel. I'm going to make a velouté, although if I do need a little bit of extra liquid, I'm going to use a little milk instead of water. The trick is here is that you are not making a sauce, you are making a binder. So a bechamel, like the most famous bechamel that probably everybody knows, even if you know nothing about any kind of sauce making whatsoever is white gravy, like for biscuits and gravy. That is a bechamel. It's just called gravy, but it actually is a bechamel. It's made with a roux and then you you use the roux to thicken milk. What we're doing is exactly the same thing, except we're using a much higher percentage of roux to liquid so that we're gonna wind up with a really thick, almost like a paste. And then when you mix the mussels in with the paste, then they form a very firm, after they cool down a little bit, they form something that's firm enough that you can shape it into you know, typically patties, although in this case we'll be smooshing it inside of half shells of mussels. The nice thing about doing a bechamel as opposed to like uh, the mashed potato ones or uh, the breadcrumb ones is that then when you re when you fry it the interior has this really creamy texture that's really really nice to eat and it and it's a nice uh, contrast with the crispiness of the outside sometimes the the ones that are made with breadcrumbs or even sometimes just fresh bread they can be a little dry you don't get that with a bechamel and doing it this way, it gives you a lot of control over how you flavor it, because you can flavor the sauce and then you don't have to have a bunch of other stuff in the actual mixture. So let's make a bechamel. We're not gonna use butter, we're gonna use olive oil. And the reason is, is because this is a Spanish dish, they don't use as much butter. In Spain, they use olive oil. I'm gonna say that's about a half a cup of olive oil. Going to heat that up and I have some flour here now a roux the classical uh, ratio is three parts flour to two parts butter i grew up with cajun roux which are different and they have a different purpose those are almost always equal parts and part of the reason i think is because those are typically cooked really really dark so if you don't use enough oil it's really easy to burn the flour for a roux like this we're only gonna cook it until you've just lost that raw flour taste. So you can use more flour. The point of this roux is not the dark flavor. The point of this roux is that you want the flour to thicken. What the roux is going to do is allow the starch. It's going to cook the protein in the flour enough so that it doesn't taste raw. That will also allow the starch in the flour to absorb the liquid and thicken it. Now I always start whisking my roux with a whisk because it breaks up the clumps of flour better. Then I'll switch to using a wooden spoon or a rubber spatula or whatever. You do want to make sure that all of the clumps of flour are broken up, otherwise you'll have a lumpy sauce. And you'll notice that an olive oil that an olive oil roux is uh, a little greenish in color, as opposed to butter roux, which is much more on the yellow white end. So I'm just gonna cook it for maybe a minute or two. I don't want it to brown, and I've got some onions that I've chopped. So this is basically one kind of medium small onion. So I'm cooking this very, very slowly and I'm going to give it a few minutes because I want the onions to start to just get a little bit sweet and they'll release some of their juices, but those juices will be picked up by the flour and that'll form like this nice oniony base. While I am cooking that, I am grabbing my bowl full of cooked mussels. You want to use a bunch of them and I'm just going to give them a real rough mince. Uh, I'm not going to puree them, you know, and make a fine, super fine uh, like muscle powder. And I'm going to be pretty generous with them. You know, this is a way to make these things stretch, but if you wind up not using enough of them, then it just doesn't really taste like anything. I've only added a little bit of salt at this point. And now I have the juice from my muscles and I'm going to start adding it and I'm going to start adding it very, very slowly. So as I add it, The whole whole mixture gets very, very stiff and very, very tight, and that's good because that indicates to me that my process is working. You know, if you're making a sauce, depending on how much uh, or how thick or how thin you want your sauce to be or your gravy, you know, you might use this amount of roux for a quart of uh, liquid or even more, depending on how thin you want to go. For making croquettes, you want it to be a lot stiffer. It is real stiff right now, but I think it's a little too stiff at the moment. So I'm gonna add a splash of milk. One way that I I use to, to think about when I'm getting to the right place is it's gonna be about the same temperature when you cook it eventually, when you deep fry it, it's gonna be about the same temperature as it is right now. So you're looking for the texture that you want to have in your mouth when you bite into one of these. So right now it's looking to me like it's still going to be a little bit gluey. So I'm going to add a splash more milk. Now it's now it's spreading out a lot more. Now it's more like a frosting than it was before when it was a little doughier. So I got a little salt. I'm going to add a little more salt and some black pepper. I'm going to add a little smoked paprika because I like smoked paprika and because it's Spanish. Cayenne. Remember with with cayenne and with any peppers, it's always better to start out on the light side. It is called tiger mussels. It's not cuddly puppy mussels, not cow mussels, not codfish mussels. Tiger mussels. I've got some red pepper flakes and I'm going to add a generous pinch. I want these guys to I want you to notice. I want you to notice when they come around. The heat is going to sneak up on you. One of the advantages of using a little bechamel, uh, a little dairy in your sauce is that it'll help uh, dull some of that heat so it's not overwhelming, especially if you have people that aren't into crazy hot. This is also a good thing to serve with uh, some nice spicy sauce along with it so that the people who are not so into heat can get just a nice little piquant kick and people who are into heat and add to their own. If you really want to go nuts, you can, you can throw in some fresh serranos or fresh jalapenos or whatever right about now. And at this point, I'm going to let this cool down a little bit because I don't want to add the super hot uh, bechamel to my mussels. So I'm going to let that cool down and then I'm going to mix my mussels in with this bechamel and form th- and form that into the cleaned uh, shells that I've reserved and save the nice ones, you know, save the biggest ones for this. And then all I gotta do is roll the tops in egg wash and breadcrumbs. Panko is what I'm, is what I'm gonna use and uh, throw those suckers in the deep fryer. And you got a delicious tiger mussels. 40 by 40,
3: okay,
1: with five 40 foot I beams. Okay. Plastic floats. Um, the mussel lines hang down twenty-five feet.
0: Twenty-five feet. Mm-hmm. So you get you get twenty-five feet of mussels on every rope. Uh-huh. And the ropes are they're just
1: bait bag basic. material.
0: Oh, okay. Stop. They start off coiled up at the surface.
1: All, uh, most of the larvae, when mussels, barnacles, things set, they're up at the surface, warmest water, most nutrients, okay, more things to stick to, okay, and the, they're in the tide zone usually. Uh-huh.
0: And as they grow you.
1: After the first winter, we break the we cut the zip tie off and drop them down so they're hanging down to 25 feet. Okay. And we don't even really have to surround them in the predator net the first year because they're too small for the uh, otters. They're just babies. They're just babies. The first year, they don't really grow much more than half an inch. Right. As you can see on there and all the other fouling and then after the first year, you have to hang the net.
0: So how many uh, how many pounds roughly do you, does one rope produce? Um,
1: let me think about this. Anywhere from fifty to hundred pounds. Okay. Uh huh. Of sure. market size mussels, and as you can see, there's a lot of ropes here. You can hang four hundred ropes per raft. Okay. The rafts are capable of yielding seventy thousand pounds, but. Wow.
0: So when you when you actually do the do the harvest, so you drag that that other boat over, right? Uh uh-huh. With the what was the, the the declumper? Is that what it's called? The declumper. Okay.
1: This is the muscle declumper, grater, cleaner. Ooh. Import from New Zealand.
0: Oh really? Mm hmm. Oh, so this is an actual like this is actual gear. The real deal. Nice. So just uh, dis- so describe the process to me. We got a chute here with a worm, and it looks like basically a meat grinder.
1: And a uh, 12-inch block here. Oh, yep. power block and the the lines are pulled on through the chute put into the block and run through the stripper and hauled on from the rafts through the stripper the muscles fall into the auger and into the declumper.
0: so this this just breaks them all apart while not stripping out the thistle
1: yep making them singles
0: does that do you run water through it while it's going on, I'm assuming?
1: Yes, lots of water being pushed through and used in it, and it's a big bath in there.
0: So so when they come out, are they pretty well ready to sell?
1: Mm-hmm, and graded, all the small ones fall through, and declumped with the tines in here and the chains.
0: <coughs> so you what,
1: you put a toad underneath there, and they just- All the small out. ones go underneath. The big ones come out the end.
0: Big ones come out the end. Mm-hmm. Small ones go back on the farm?
3: Mhm,
1: and you can see the size of the machine. It's only five feet long. Yeah, six feet long.
0: Yeah, it's not very big. How much? Uh, how much can you process an hour?
1: Um, two thousand pounds. Oh wow. Uh huh. You can run them right through. Sweet. Mhm.
0: This thing's rad.
2: We should say how everything goes, we put it into huge totes of water for a couple hours so the mussels can purge out any mud that they may have in them. I got
0: you. Yeah, because these mussels, are usually pretty clean, though. Yeah. Because they're And the mussels are suspended, right?
2: Yeah, they're rope-grown mussels, so they grow directly on the line, so they're always suspended in the water as opposed to mussels you get off the beach that can have grit in them and sand. These mussels are really clean, but they still... Have just a little of their own mud, which we like to purge out.
0: Right, and mm-hmm.
1: it helps with the shelf life after running them through the declumper and being so rough with them.
0: What is the uh, what is the shelf life on these guys? Like, if I bought a bag from you, how long can I expect it to?
1: A week max. Yeah, seven days. Three to five is probably the average. Right.
2: Our our muscles aren't debissed. That's when you rip the beards out. The beard is the bissel thread. That's what attaches a muscle to. The rocks, or to the mussel rope in our case. Um, So anyway, they produce these little threads, and when you consume a mussel, you rip those threads out. As the farmer, we sell ours with the um, beard still on because it actually decreases the shelf life when you rip the beard out. So anyway, the restaurants, we have them de-beard the mussels and kind of clean them up and right before cooking but when we if they're keeping them in the fridge for a few days we just tell them to keep them in the bag with like a wet cloth or they like being in the salt water and they don't like fresh that can harm them and and the restaurants here really appreciate them and people love mussels
0: we are not in belgium if we were in Belgium, I'd be telling you how to make French fries here in this segment. But we're in the U.S., so I'm going to tell you how to make bread. Now, bread is a very wide category of stuff, and so I will tell you straight out that what I'm going to do today is make the simplest bread that you can pretty much possibly make. There is Not only are there no, is there no uh, necessity, <laughs> I was about to say no need, although there is actually no kneading involved, There's no necessity for a mixer. You don't need a mixer. You don't need to do uh, pre-ferments. You don't need to make starters or poolishes or bigas or sourdoughs or anything complicated. You don't need a stand mixer. You don't need anything except for some flour, some water, some yeast, and some salt. And this bread is so, so simple. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do real quick is explain the concept of hydration in bread. You will always see it expressed as a percentage. Some breads, they might be a 65% uh, hydration bread. Some might be 72. Some might be 80. What that means is that is the percentage of water as a percentage of the flour. So for example, a 65% hydration uh, white bread would be 65 grams of water for every 100 grams of flour. Likewise, 72% hydration, which is what this is, 72% grams of water per 100 grams of flour. It's part of a larger concept called baker's math, which I'm not going to get into right now, but essentially the percentage of all of the ingredients are expressed as a percentage of the flour. If you see a professional recipe and it says 1.8% salt, that means 1.8 grams of salt for every 100 grams of flour. And that's total flour. So white flour plus wheat flour plus rye flour plus whatever, total flour. So this recipe it has four ingredients, flour, water, yeast, and salt. This is going to be 72%, which is considered on the low end of high hydration. Most of the white breads that we're kind of familiar with, like sandwich breads or baguettes or Italian bread, any, any of the kind of run-of-the-mill breads that we eat every day are typically in the range of 65 to 68% hydration. That yields a little bit softer crumb. Typically, the way they're mixed, they have a more even and consistent texture. As you increase the hydration, you generally start getting a chewier crumb. If you've had a lot of like artisan breads, kind of when you bite into them, there's a lot of chew, there's a lot of strength in the dough. That is typically because they are higher hydration. Bread is such a complicated, we could do a whole season on bread easily and still not even come close to covering it. Today, we're going to keep things very simple. Flour, water, yeast, salt. This is a 72% no need bread. This also contains 1.8% salt, which means for every 100 grams of flour, I have 1.8 grams of salt, and I'm gonna have 1% yeast, which means, again, 100 grams of flour, one gram of yeast. So this bread is going to ferment outside of the refrigerator for one hour-ish, and then I'm gonna put it in the fridge overnight. I'm gonna pull it out tomorrow, and I'm gonna bake it tomorrow. So if you've never made bread before, I highly encourage you, you don't have to, you know, when you, when you, you don't have to do the windowpane thing, you don't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out if you've kneaded enough or if you've kneaded too much, you don't have to worry about that. It's a very simple, very forgiving dough. So I'm adding, this is going to be 500 grams. So that's 500 grams of flour. And I'm going to go ahead and add the salt and the yeast right now. 1.8%. 500 times 1.8% equals 9 grams of salt. And 500 times 1% is coincidentally 5 grams of yeast. Stir those guys together with my hand. Tear. Oh yeah, that's right. It does require more equipment than just a bowl. It does require a digital scale. 360 grams of water this is a no-knead bread but it's not a no-mix bread you do have to mix this stuff up a little flour on your hands just a quick one you're not this is not a big need like you do like you would do with a lower hydration dough it's gonna be a little shaggy it's gonna feel a little sticky do not add too much flour and by the way the universal Baker's trick for getting rid of the sticky dough on your fingers is to take a pinch of flour and rub it all over your hands, preferably over the trash can. It'll come right off. So I am going to cover this with plastic wrap and I'm gonna let it, it's gonna ferment for an hour, but every roughly 20 minutes in that hour, I am gonna come in and I'm gonna do what's called folding the dough. All that means is I'm gonna pick up one end of it, fold it over itself like it's a letter, spin it around, and fold the other side of it over. It'll turn from kind of a shaggy, sticky mass into something that resembles bread dough. It'll still be wetter and stickier than perhaps you're used to if you've made lower hydration doughs before, but it will be considerably different than it is right now. And then I'll I'll stick it in the fridge. Tomorrow I will shape it and bake it. The dough has been in the fridge. It can actually stay in the fridge for even a couple days. I wouldn't push it past three days. The yeast starts to run out of steam. It is still, it's still a little wet. It's definitely sticky when I touch it, but it is not near the shaggy mass that it was. Dough shaping is one of the culinary techniques that you can't really talk your way through it. You just have to see it, and really what you have to do is do it. Whatever shapes you wind up with, it's going to taste good, so don't worry too much, especially if you've never really made bread before. Don't worry a lot about what it looks like in this case. If you have made bread before, me explaining shaping isn't gonna matter at all. You can make rolls, you can make small baguettes, you can make big baguettes, you can make rounds, you can make however you want to. I'm gonna turn this into four like half baguettes. So take it out of the fridge and let let it warm up a little bit. You need the gluten to relax a little and it needs to be warm for that to happen. Floured surface, flouring my hands. Give it a quick kind of stretch, see how it's handling. It's not springing back too much. That means that the gluten's relaxed. This is a good size for like, if you wanted to make like a po'boy or a, you know, like a submarine sandwich, something like that. But it's also a good size, a good size for one person for their bowl of mussels. And I'm not even, even though I have some specialized bread equipment like Benettons and uh, Baker's Linen and stuff like that, I'm not using any of that stuff. I'm just putting all this right on a sheet pan that has been lined with some parchment paper. And I'm gonna sprinkle just a little flour on that. So one thing about doing it this way is that because they don't have, they're not gonna have any support on the sides. So they're gonna spread a little wider and they're not gonna be quite as high. Adding very little flour, just enough flour so that it doesn't stick to my hands and that it doesn't stick to my countertop. And now I've got my four little pistolets, as they call them in New Orleans. And they just need to rise, covered, basically for about an hour, hour and a half, maybe. The way to tell if dough is ready is to stick your finger in it. If it springs back really quickly, it needs more time to proof. This stage is called proofing. If you push into the dough and it makes an indention that very slowly springs back, then it's ready. And if you push into the dough and it just stays there and it doesn't spring back at all, it's overproofed and you need to get it into the oven now. I like to do these at about 425, crank your oven for a while, give it a good half hour, you want it to be nice and hot. There's a question that we're going to sidestep today and that is the question of steam in the oven. But in the interest of encouraging you to perhaps do something, make bread that you haven't done before, I'm gonna completely not worry about steam because you can make very successful bread without it. If you are curious about steam, there is a wealth of information out there, but if you've never made bread before, I don't wanna scare you away by making you fiddle around with steam and hot water and stuff like that. Let it heat up really well, and then put your sheet pan with your bread on it in the oven for probably 25 minutes. This size bread is gonna take. Bigger loaves take longer, obviously. And then you can pull out this very simple bread and you can soak it right in the muscle juice and use it as a vehicle for deliciousness.
2: Yeah, bissel threads are really an amazing thing. They don't quite know like how the muscle makes them, but they secrete them out of like their stomach and just make them like it's pretty much like spider man like a muscle we put in a bucket the bottom of the bucket a five gallon will climb to the top of the bucket in five minutes because it just like shoots its missile threads out and like actually they travel they can really move it's like one of the strongest filaments in nature it's like spider web like an inch diameter would stop a jet, but they're meant to handle the pummeling ocean, you know, the intertidal area. We really take advantage of the bissell threads growing mussels because we grow the mussels on a mussel sock and it's all dependent on the mussels clinging on to the sock naturally.
0: Okay, so tell me. What's your, favorite, what's your favorite way to cook them?
2: Oh, I love mussels so many ways, but uh, a lot of mussel fritters. And with those, you actually cook the mussels and take the meats out of the shell and then make, like, a fritter batter, like flour and egg and milk and fry that and onion you have to use a lot of onion fry that up as a fritter that's a family favorite and but there's always just the standard you know garlic butter and a little white wine and you've got yourself a really delicious pot of mussels
0: Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. This episode was partly recorded at Glacier Point Seafoods in Halibut Cove. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement Two by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the sixth episode of the spring 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. you